The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Empowerment Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit VoiceAmericaEmpowerment.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit VoiceAmerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Your brain might just help you learn something in more ways than one. Welcome to Dr. Gary Bell's Absurd Psychology. Dr. Bell is a licensed marriage and family therapist. He'll be your guide on this crazy exploration designed to bring life back to our existence. Can you become the element of change in an ever-changing world? Possibly, but you've got to listen on to find out. Now, here's the host of Absurd Psychology, Dr. Gary Bell. Welcome, everybody. Hi, this is Dr. Gary Bell. Today, we're going to talk about how philosophy can work in your life. And you know what? I last week I apologize for anybody who was listening live, but we we had audio problems and I lost connection, and uh, so there it is. So this week we're going to do this one. We're going to try to do this one over again and get it done. I only got into it about two minutes last time. All right. So why why study philosophy and how can it help us in life? Well, the reason I bring up philosophy is because so much of psychology was derived from philosophical theories. And so, interestingly enough, a lot of experimentation took place in psychology and continues to, pulling from various uh, philosophies and implementing them into people's people's life. So this show is kind of heady, and I apologize for that. And what I mean by that is I'm going to be teaching, basically. And it, it really has a lot to do with trying to comprehend these theories and get our head around it and then learn how to apply them into our own life. So what we're going to do is break down probably the most boring one first, and I'd like to do that in a little bit, and that's called behaviorism, and we'll plow through that and then move into some things that are a little bit more uh, fun and interesting. But, you know, first of all, we have to understand what is uh, the difference between philosophy and psychology. Well, philosophy studies the nature of knowledge, reality, and existence, where psychology studies the human mind and its functions, especially those relating to behavior. Both, both bodies of knowledge deal with people and life, but the aspects they focus on vary in enormously. So, in its simplest differentiation, it can be said that philosophy tries to comprehend the existence of human life while psychology endeavors to understand human behavior. Uh, Because understanding human life is really hard, philosophy basically encompasses a very wide spectrum of topics. And to make these more digestible, the academic discipline of reality and questions about the existence of God and the order of things are discussed in metaphysics, which is a part of psychology. Also, questions that have to do with knowledge and whether man knows anything at all are discussed in epistemology, which is where things begin. And so ethics is another part of philosophy, and it talks about what is good and what is right and what is morally uh, morality and what is uh, logic uh, tackles 
and, and what is also reasoning. And so no matter what discipline is being discussed, students in philosophy are con constantly engaged in a series of questions and answers that try to give meaning to our life and our existence. And the ultimate question that many people ask is, who am I and what is the purpose of my life? And this show actually moves into that topic if you've uh, listened to previous shows. Okay, now psychology deals with the study of the human mind and human behavior as both an applied and an academic science, so it tries to understand why people think, act, and feel the way they do. Moreover, psychology is subdivided into academic psychology and applied psychology. So academic is concerned with expanding your understanding, such as this show today, and applied is how to push it into your own human development, your behavior, your personality. So, you know, what we're trying to do here is basically break some of these theories down and see how they can improve our lives. Now, behaviorism, once again, is a fairly dry theory. So we're going to talk about it first, but you know what it does? It teaches us how to influence people, how to raise children, how to uh, uh, start a business, how to operate a business, how to manage people, how to manage a family, how to manage uh, basically ourselves. And so many people apply behaviorism across the spectrum of human existence without even knowing where it came from. You know, it's a very systematic approach to understanding human and animal behavior. And it assumes that the behavior of a human or an animal is, the, is a consequence of that individual's history, including uh, reinforcement punishment together with the individual's current motivational state and controlling stimulus. The, basically, behaviorists generally accept the important role of inheritance in determining behavior, so they focus primarily on environmental factors. And what I'm trying to get to is that there is a reason for everything in this world and why people do everything they do. And that's what behaviorism is all about. It combines philosophy, methodology, and psychological theory. And basically, it is a scientific approach to psychology. So, you know, what, what basically we have to do is look at uh, exactly what it is and what do uh, behavioral theories entail. So behaviorism, uh, which is also known as behavioral psychology, is a theory of learning based on the idea that all behaviors are acquired through conditioning. Conditioning occurs through interaction with the environment. So behaviors believe that our responses to the environmental stimulus shapes our actions. So according to the school of thought, behavior can be studied in systematic and observable manners. So, you know, what, what, what are we looking at? There's, uh, you know, two types of uh, conditioning. And there, there is classical conditioning, which is a technique used in behavioral training, which a naturally occurring stimulus is paired with a response. So, you know, what is that? There's two elements. There's a conditioned uh, stimulus and a conditioned response. So what is that in human terms? In, in, a, in, a, in a very famous uh, field study, researchers basically injected sheep carcasses with a poison that would make coyotes sick but not kill them. And so the goal was to help uh, sheep ranchers reduced the number of sheep lost to coyote killing, killings. So not only did the experiment work, by lowering the number of sheep killed, it also caused some of the coyotes to develop a very strong aversion to the sheep. And they, they would actually run away at the scent or the sight of a sheep because 
once again, they put uh, poison in the sheep carcasses, and when they ate them, they developed a negative stimulus, which means they diverted away from eating sheep. So these are this example is in human terms of what this behavioral uh, behavioral science has brought to human life. Also, there's another uh, form of behavioral uh, behaviorism, and that's operant conditioning. And that is a method of learning that occurs through reinforcements and punishments for behavior. So, you know, if you look at it, the reinforcement uh, would be if it's a positive reinforcement, like a teacher complimenting students when they answer correctly, which will increase that behavior. And then a negative would be like a teacher exempts a student from the final test if they have a perfect attendance. So the teacher is taking away something unpleasant to increase the behavior. So that's a way to motivate people to change. There's another uh, thing, which is the punishment. There's a negative punishment, which a child doesn't, the example is a child doesn't put his bike away, so the parents lock it up for a certain amount of time. So the parents basically took away something pleasant to decrease the behavior of not putting their bike away. Now, there's a positive. So a positive punishment is when a student misbehaves in class, they receive a timeout. So that's a positive punishment. So through operant conditioning, an association is made between a behavior and a consequence for that behavior. So we can all improve our life and make our lives a lot better by understanding behaviorism because basically it takes away all the thinking, all the guilt and shame that we use to manipulate people and basically uses the human condition and the human's desires and using punishment to basically take things away and get people to change and get them to adapt to what needs to happen. So, you know, behaviorism is huge. It's huge and it makes life so much simpler if we apply it. But unfortunately, many people don't study it, or if they did, they forgot it, and they don't understand how much simpler it can make their raising their children, working at work, managing people, uh, all kinds of things, dealing with a, 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 a bad teenager or a bad child. Now, let's talk about another philosophy that can really help life, and that is called humanism. Now, humanism as a philosophy has five basic ingredients. Number one is that our planet basically revolves around a medium-sized uh, star, which is located near the edge of an average-sized galaxy, as many as, three billion, uh, of as many as three billion stars in our galaxy. And so this star is part of a galaxy group consisting of more than 30 other galaxies which is part of an expanding universe while consistently uh, consisting mostly of cold dark space but it also contains perhaps a hundred billion galaxies in addition to our own so our species basically from a humanism perspective has existed only in a very short time on earth and the Earth itself has existed for a very short time in the history of our galaxy. So our existence is basically considered by humanism an incredible, minuscule, and brief part of a much larger picture. So we're all basically like rocks floating through space with uh, the view that we have of space from where we stand. So in, in, in light of this, we... It, the, basically, the absence of direct evidence, religious thinkers can conclude that the universe or some creative power beyond its concern of our well-being or our future seems more logical. They, they conclude that we are alone 
and our concern for our well-being and our future. So this basically takes away a religious perspective and it just says everybody is alone in this world. Now we know we're not, and yes, there is faith, and yes, there is religion. But once again, we're talking about a philosophy, and that is humanism. Now, basically, they also believe that human beings are neither entirely unique from other forms of life, nor are they the final product of some planned scheme of development. Uh, basically, we are uh, building blocks of other life forms that may come uh, beyond us. And so also from a humanist uh, theory, there's no compelling evidence to justify the belief that human mind is distinct and separable from the human brain, which itself is part of a body. So it's basically a holistic picture of us as humans. And they also say that the basic motivations that determine our values are ultimately rooted in our biology and in our early experiences, our childhood experiences. So when people are left largely free to pursue their own interests and goals, to think and to speak for themselves, to develop their abilities, and to operate in a social setting that promotes liberty, the number of beneficial discoveries and accomplishments increases and humanity moves further towards the goal of greater self-understanding, better laws, better institutions, and a good life. Now, that is a very heady uh, view of humanism. And once again, when you talk about philosophy, it's a lot of wisdom and it's a lot of years putting those thoughts together. But basically what we have to look at is how does this affect uh, us in a psychological perspective. Once again, humanism is a holistic view. So uh, it, it's... Um, it basically means that the personality is studied from the point of view of the individual's subjective experience, um, not their behavior, not the unconscious, not their thinking, or the human brain, but how individuals actually perceive and interpret events. So a human's perception, which is why uh, people argue in marriage because they refuse to hear each other's perceptions because they think they're absolutely absurd, so the deal is they sit there and yell at each other and never listen. This calls for listening to the human's perspective. Not, and that has to be recognized as the human being's truth. And that means not everyone owns the truth. Everybody has their own truth. So, you know, basically humanism uh, rejected the assumptions of behaviorism, which is what we just talked about before, and they also uh, rejected a psychodynamic approach, which is basically everything uh, started with your, all your problems began with your mother. And, and basically, it moves into how you're seeing things today and what you're doing about it, how you're seeing things from your perspective. So it, it basically offers a new set of values for approaching and understanding of us and the human condition. It's, it's, it's in the moment. It's expanded a horizon of methods and of inquiry of human behavior and offers a broader range of more effective uh, ways to do psychotherapy because you're working in the moment. You're, you're not concerned about the past. You're concerned about what are you doing, why are you doing this, and what's the logic, and what is your perception of the truth about this, and then bending that truth. So basically... Uh, one of the great humanists that we know of that, that used humanism was Carl Rogers. And basically, he thought that all answers are within the human being. If you just ask them questions and let them solve their problems, they'll do it themselves. And so what he would do is ask a series of open questions, and basically the person would barf out everything and then discover their answers within. 
uh, he, he would not offer people the answer. He would basically let them find the answer with very directed questions. You know, they believed uh, him and, and uh, Maslow, uh, which I don't know if you've ever heard of Maslow's hierarchy, but they regarded personal growth and fulfillment in his life as a basic human motive. This means each person, in different ways, seeks to grow psychologically and continuously enhance themselves. And, and, and so this is called self-actualization. This is called how to develop your individuality, your, your psychological growth, fulfillment, your satisfaction. That is the main concern of humanism. And, and so it's really cool because it really offers the idea that we all have all of the answers within ourselves, which ultimately all these people that practice self-psychology fundamentally believe that. You know, I can pick up a book and I can figure it out myself. Well, to tell you the truth, it's really hard to get outside of yourself and be objective. And that's why uh, therapy from the humanism perspective is so important because it allows you to conclude and to scientifically, not scientifically, but to basically peel back your own problem, but do it verbally so you bring it to the conscious and you hear yourself talk and you hear yourself problem solve. So, you know, it, it, it's, it's not a scientific method, but what it is is a human method. And, and so it's, it's basically uh, taking on options and developing options for ourselves and understanding why we think the way we are. Now, that leads to my favorite philosophy, which is existentialism. And, and, and so in simpler terms, uh, this is about finding yourself and the meaning of life through free will, through choices, personal responsibility, basically with existentialism, the belief is that people are searching to find out who and what they are throughout life as they make choices based on their experiences, their beliefs, and their outlook. And personal choices basically come from, uh, uh, become unique without the necessity of an objective form of truth. So there is no truth there is your truth, which comes from humanism. And so basically, let's think about this. I have no problems. My life is right now. You are getting 100% of me. I'm not living in the past, in the future. I'm just giving you everything I got. And basically, when we do that, we value life. And, and if you can take away all our fears and all our worries and just focus on the person we're sitting with and actually develop a relationship with that person, unbelievably things get solved and we have lots of meaningful moments in our life where we connect with other people. All right, we're going to take a quick break and then we're going to come back. We're going to finish up on existentialism and then we're going to move into uh, dialectic and a whole bunch of other philosophies that operate in life. Thank you. It's your world. Motivate. Change. Succeed. VoiceAmericaEmpowerment.com Dr. Gary Bell is a licensed marriage and family therapist in Southern California, but he is here to help you no matter where you are. Visit drgbmft.com. You can schedule an appointment with Dr. Bell, and many major health insurance plans are accepted. Call or text Dr. Bell today at 951-818-7856 or visit drgbmft.com. Dr. Bell could help you take back your life in four to eight carefully constructed sessions. Stop coping and start living in the now. Call 951-818-7856 or visit drgbmft.com today. 
Do you have complete control over your thoughts and your life? It seems like we do, but there are always outside forces that are wreaking havoc with that control. How do we get our thoughts back on track, so to speak? Listen for help. My thoughts are holding me hostage with Dr. Jeffrey Fannin. When you command the power of thought, you can achieve or have whatever you want. Make the laws of the universe work for you. Tune in every Friday at 10 a.m. Pacific Time, 1 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Empowerment Channel. What makes you a success? Is it your business or career? Is it your family and social life? How do you achieve the next level in your success? Tune in to Infinite Success Radio with host Rachel O'Brien Eddy. Rachel and her amazing guests are here to encourage, inspire, and empower you to take control of your destiny and achieve the level of success you were born to reach. How do ordinary people become extraordinary? Find out with Infinite Success Radio, broadcasting live every Friday at 8 a.m. Pacific Time, 11 a.m. Eastern Time on Voice America Empowerment. It's your world. Motivate. Change. Succeed. VoiceAmericaEmpowerment.com You are tuned in to Dr. Gary Bell's Absurd Psychology. If you have a question for Dr. Gary or his guest, please call in to 1-888-346-9141. That's 1-888-346-9141. That's easy enough, but if you want to send an email... It'll take some thinking. Got a pen? The email address is drgbmft at svcglobal.net. Or you can just click on Email Host on the Voice America page. Now back to Dr. Gary Bell's Absurd Psychology. Welcome back, everybody. All right. We're talking. We're in this real heady discussion about uh, basically philosophy and psychology. And so... Um, I'm trying to make this into something that you can understand how philosophies influence psychology and how it influences human life and how it can change all of us. And believe me, knowledge is knowledge. You can get it from anywhere, anywhere. But so many people do a lot of self-help and they do a lot of reading in the psychological section. I would also suggest to you that there's another half of the world that can help you and that is called philosophy. However, philosophy can be very heady, and so that's what I'm trying to make it very simple for you to understand. Today, we're ta- right now, we're talking about existentialism, and, and basically this theory means we live in the now. There is no psychosis. You live in the present, and, and you give the present moment you're in 100% of your attention. And you don't live in your head, and you don't live in your past, and you don't live in your worries, and you don't live in your projects, uh, projections for the future. And, and one of the people that really uh, brought this forward was a, a guy named, uh, D- doctor named Viktor Frankl. And what he basically did, uh, he was in a Nazi uh, uh, in, uh, camp uh, where, uh, where basically they were, you know, concentration camp where they were killing people and killing Jews, and he was Jewish. He lost his children and his family. He was a medical doctor, but he studied existentialism very extensively. And so what he did, he spent three years in concentration camps, in, in, including Auschwitz, and he basically found himself living in the moment. 
he had patients that were Jews that would come to him, and when they came to him and when he worked with them, he was fully present with them. So he made, instead of worrying about, am I going to die in the ovens or am I going to die you know, are they going to hang me? Are they going to kill me? He never worried about that. Not, I can't say never because I'm not him. But the deal is what he did was he decided to live in each moment. And when he did that, it took the fear of life away. And it made moments in that concentration camp extremely valuable between him and his patients. And he didn't care if they were going to die, how they were, what was going to happen in the next hour. He focused on the moment. And believe me, this was very powerful because it took all psychosis away, all worries away. It was a complete faith-based life where he basically lived in the moment. And that's it. No fear. And from that, once again, he maintained himself for three years in the concentration camps and various ones. But also what he did was he came to the United States after the war, and he taught prisoners how to live in prison, which back then, in, that, in the 40s and the 50s, there was enormous amounts of violence in the prisons. And so what he, not that there isn't today, but what he did was he taught them how to live in prison and form relationships with each other, which took down the violence in prisons enormously. Now, I'm not going to go too far on this, but I'm trying to basically give you the understanding of how to apply existentialism into your life. And he wrote a book called Man's Search for Meaning. So you might want to pull that off a shelf in our library or go buy it. But it's a very small, thin book, but it is a great book on application of existentialism. So basically what it is, is a person is best when they're struggling against their individual nature and they're fighting for life in the moment. Decisions are not without stress and consequences, but they're in the moment. There's also things that are not rational. Uh, there's also personal responsibility and discipline is crucial. So society, so we are a walking value system managing our integrity in, in the moment. So every decision we make is important. But the world and trying to take on the world is a futile decision. And it's also a psychotic decision because we can't control the world. So basically, what's, what existentialism does is it focuses on social values and structure uh, to control the individual and accept what is and, and that enough is enough in life. That we don't have to go for perfection. We can go for relationships. Also, science can and will make everything better. So it's a faith-based life. And, and people are basically good but ruined by society and external forces. And uh, they basically are, uh, there's a wide variety of looking at existentialism, but there is no universal agreement on an ideal uh, set of ideals or, or values and beliefs. But existential psychotherapy is based on one fundamental belief that each individual experiences intra-psychic conflict due to their interaction with certain conditions inherent in their past and in their future projections. So basically, once again, it deals with in-the-moment living. And boy, is that a relief. Also, your freedom from associated responsibility, you're free from death because you're not focused on it, you're, you're free from isolation, you're free from meaninglessness. 
and basically every moment is meaningful within existentialism. So person's uh, uh, physical, psychological, social, spiritual awareness, which may lead to significant long-term consequences if they are anxious. And so what it does is it tries to relieve us of anxiety by focusing on the moment. You know, we strike a balance between being aware of death without being overwhelmed by it. Individuals who maintain a healthy balance are motivated to make decisions that can positively impact their lives as well as the lives of other people. You know, though these people may not know how their decisions will actually turn out, they do appreciate the need to take action while they can. And so in essence, the reality of death encourages us to make the most of opportunities and to treasure the things we have. So basically, we look at death as the final event of life rather than a definition or the end of life. It is just the last event of our life. It is not our life. It's not who we are. It's not why we wake up in the morning. So, you know, like death, uh, the threat of isolation and the meaninglessness of life and and the weighty responsibility of making life-altering decisions may each be a source of of existential anxiety. So according to the theories of existential therapy, the manner in which an individual processes these internal conflicts and the subsequent decisions that they make ultimately determines that individual's present and future. So that is what existentialism does. It also accepts fears. Um, You know, existential psychotherapy encourages people to address emotional issues, They face them through full engagement. They take responsibility for the decisions that cause them to develop. And basically, we're all a work in process. We're not to be judged on the past. We're basically a continuous work in progress. And so we deal with our truths. We state our truths. We state the things we're ashamed of. We state the things we're guilty of. We don't live in lies. We just live and process and continue to evolve. And so basically... People who practice this kind of psychotherapy, existentialism, do not focus on the past. They work on the client, with the client, to discover and explore the choices that lie before them today. Through introspection, basically, there's an exploration that the person in therapy and the therapist work to understand the implications of past choices and the beliefs that led to take those past choices, and only as a means to shift the goal of creating a a, a better insight to oneself. And so that is what it's about. And when that happens, people are truly free. That's what I love about existentialism. I practice existentialism in my therapy, but it is certainly uh, not the core of everything that I do. But it is a tool, just like everything else, a tool that I use. So, uh, you know, what what are some of the concerns uh, that, that, that... this can help. Well, obviously, post-traumatic stress syndrome, substance abuse, uh, depression, mental health issues, uh, interpersonal violence, life-threatening experiences, uh, childhood sexual abuse, rape, military combat, all this, this stuff, the existentialism can be used in all of that type of, uh, of problems in life. And, and it, 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 it basically involves 
uh, a very intellectual approach, but that is a good thing. And so when you challenge people, they will usually rise to the challenge. The problem is you have to, you have to speak their language, and I hope I'm getting through to you. At least 30% of this is getting through to you. All right, now there's another psychology that is a philosophy, and it's called dialectic. And uh, basically, uh, this was uh, uh, developed by a, a gentleman named Hegel, and, and uh, basically what they believed was uh, uh, th th that this makes uh, basically that dialectic thinking takes on how do we begin to understand how things work uh, from a totality, the, the whole picture, every stage or phase or moment is partial. And so there are no fundamental, this is how it is. There is no black and white thinking. It, it takes on the grand idea, the totality, which preserves a whole moment or a, a consequence in what led to it and how to basically take on that process, overcoming it, submitting a new process that basically gives us new ways to view moments and, and how things have happened. We no longer have good and evil. We have this is what happened. And that is called the land of forgiveness. When we understand how things have happened, we basically humanize them. We begin to understand people's intentions and we forgive because we understand the human motives involved in it. Black and white thinking is all about judgment without all of the facts. And so what Hegel did was he basically took on life and understanding it from the big, big picture. And everything is just a fractional view of the ultimate truth of what took place to get something to happen. And so analyzing what happened basically is what it's about rather than judging what happened. So, uh, you know, basically he formed a treatment of logic that thinking dwells on itself rather than trying to comprehend the world and that the science of uh, logic deals with logical categories, not accidents of history or, or various modes of relating to the world. It's rather absent or distant from the world as such. You know, I, I, basically he likened his study of logic to the study of grammar. You only really see the rewards when you later uh, come to observe the language in use and you basically grasp what, what makes that language a poetry and make it so evocatively. Uh, so he deals with basically the logic of uh, dialectic, deals with the logic of categories, the being, becoming, one, the process of life, the essence, the existence, the cause, the effect, the universal approach of life. So um, basically, you know, there's all kinds of ways to look at dialectic, but it, it has like a triadic structure. If negotiation is the inner life force of the dialectic, then triactic structure is the organic fractional form. So what are these three things? And once I said, this is a heady episode, and I'm sorry about that, but thesis is the first part of the inner life, and it is a, basically a thought is basically affirmed by the reflection proven itself unsatisfactory. So the reflection is an unsatisfactory thing and it's incomplete. And so the antithesis is the next stage which propels the affirmation of the negation. And so the antithesis, which is also a reflection, proves inadequate. And then there's the synthesis 
which is also, again, negated. So basically, the dialectic approach, once again, forms a process of logic breaking things down into the final, this is what happened. So uh, it, it's, uh, it's a hard one to talk about, but I'm doing the best I can. The analytic logic of understanding, which focuses on the data of uh, sense experience to, to, to the yield knowledge of the natural world, Basically, the dialectic logic of understanding operates independently of sense experience and erroneously professes to give knowledge to basically things in themselves or also the infinite or also the world. So, so that is basically the philosophy. Now, let's look at the psychology of this, which is what, how do you apply this crazy theory? So... Um, it's basically a cognitive behavioral thought-based approach that emphasizes the, uh, the social aspects of treatment. So the theory behind the approach is that some people are prone to react to a, a more intense and out-of-ordinary manner towards certain emotional situations. You know, primarily romantic situations, family, friend relationships. And so what dialectic therapy and theory suggests is that some people's arousal levels in such situations can increase far more quickly than the average person's, which contains a higher level of emotional stimulation, which takes on a significant amount of time to return to baseline arousal levels. So who does this treat? This treats people that are dramatic. This also treats people that have personality disorders, not to mention, uh, well, just to name a few, the histrionic personality, which is a hysterical personality, the borderline personality, which is always fighting and causing chaos. Uh, these kind of personality disorders are very uh, have very extreme swings in their emotions, and they see the world in black and white. And they seem to always be jumping from one crisis to another. And because few people understand these reactions, most, all, most of all their family, they don't understand that their childhood has basically created a person that thinks they're invalid. And so they don't have any methods for coping with sudden intense urges of emotion. And so uh, basically dialectic deals with childhood trauma, people that were traumatized in childhood and make the world black and white to make life easier. So what does it do? It identifies people's strengths. It builds on them so they can feel better. It also identifies thoughts, beliefs, and assumptions that make life harder. Like I have to be perfect. If, if I get angry, I'm a terrible person, blah, blah, blah. And also it is a collaborative work which requires constant attention to the relationships between the client and the therapist and their family. So they're basically looking at the problem from the outside in and admitting they have a problem and then analyzing it, breaking it down, and figuring out how to change it together with others who are influenced by it. So that's dialectic. I took a stab at it. Uh, I probably didn't get through, but I did my best. And then we're going to jump into some much more uh, simple theories that work in the psychological world, such as individualism, transcendentalism, determinism, and free will. Thanks for listening. Come right back. Follow us on Twitter for more great ideas at Voice America Empowerment. 
Do you like what you're hearing on the show today? Dr. Gary Bell wants to help you no matter where you are. He's fast, efficient, effective, and has a no-bull approach to helping you in less than 10 sessions. If you're ready to change right now, drop everything and call or text Dr. Bell at 951-818-7856 or visit drgbmft.com today. You can also follow Dr. Bell on Twitter at drgbmft for some great insight and direction. Are you ready? Make that change. Pick up the phone or go to the site, 951-818-7856 or drgbmft.com. Remember, drgbmft.com. Life is a journey which never gets easier. As we go through life, we just handle things better as we get to know ourselves. Listen for the Mental Sherpa by Theta Spring. Host Alexandra Janelli believes that each of us are pre-programmed with all the answers and tools we need to move through any situation life throws at us. It's discovering those tools and answers that will set us on the right path to enjoying and navigating life. Listen every Tuesday at 11 a.m. Eastern Time, 8 a.m. Pacific Time on Voice America Empowerment. Follow us on Twitter for more great ideas at Voice America Empowerment. You are tuned in to Dr. Gary Bell's Absurd Psychology. If you have a question for Dr. Gary or his guest, please call in to 1-888-346-9141. That's 1-888-346-9141. That's easy enough, but if you want to send an email... It'll take some thinking. Got a pen? The email address is drgbmft at svcglobal.net. Or you can just click on Email Host on the Voice America page. Now back to Dr. Gary Bell's Absurd Psychology. Welcome back. We're digging into this heady subject of philosophy and psychology and how they help each other. So, you know, I'm going into this theory, and I love this theory. It's called individualism. And uh, basically, if you look at the the author, Anne Rand, I don't know if any of you have ever read the the wonderful book, Atlas Shrugged or The Fountainhead. These are beautiful books on a a beautiful theory of life and a way of looking at life. It's called rugged individualism, which is basically what made up this country. Now, what's funny is Anne Rand came from Russia. So what is strange is her books powerfully define uh, the, 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 the simple idea that uh, every man as an independent, is an independent sovereign entity who basically possesses the, an inalienable right to their own life, a, a right derived from their nature as a rational being. And so basically individualism holds that a, a civilized society or inter, inter, any form of association, corporation, or peaceful coexistence among people can be achieved only on the basis of the recognition of individual rights, individual opinions of a group uh, as such, and has no rights other than the individual rights of its members. So don't make the mistake of the ignorant who thinks that an individualist is a man who says, I'll do as I please at everyone else's expense. An individualist is basically a person who has recognized the inalienable individual rights of every person, including their own and others. So they basically 
are not going to run anyone's life. They're not going to let any run, anyone run their life. They'll not rule or be ruled. They'll, they will not be a, a master or a slave. But they're not going to sacrifice themselves to anyone, nor sacrifice anyone to themselves. So basically, they're a self-made person, a self-made person. That means that their life is what it is. And, and when I talk in this show about a soul living a human life, that means they're taking on their soul's journey. They're making their life meaningful. They're not trying to just provide for their family themselves. They're not just uh, brainlessly going to work and not existing. They're not just kind of... Uh, 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 living in a life where it has no meaning to them, it doesn't taste or, or have any flavor, they're basically living a life that they've designed following their soul's passion, their soul's journey, and their desires. So let's consider this. During childhood, up to, to eight and nine, a, a, a girl or a boy often imitates their parents in order to feel closely attached to them. And then the resemblance that the parents usually reward with uh, uh, approval because they love it when their child joins them in what they love to do. So at that time and that stage in life, that eight to nine, the child defines a lot of their individuality based on shared similarity with the parents. So now during adolescence, from nine to 13, and, and basically individualism as a psychology is a developmental psychology. So the young person at 9 to 13 wants to redefine who they are by detaching from how they were as a child and from how parents are and for how parents want them to be. And so this growing dissimilarity and incompatibility can create more estrangement from their relationship with their parents, which increases the feeling of it's harder to enjoy each other's company, it's harder to understand the person our teenagers becoming, and it's harder to find what we can share in common. So at, basically at this age, the young person defines a lot of their individuality based on separating from the parents, belonging with peers, and experiencing an experience experimenting with more diversity. So during this phase, it's really important to understand that that is an individualist phase and it's necessary because that is forming through the thought process and through the experiential learning, through experiences, negative and positive, the child is beginning to understand who they are. That doesn't mean that's what the final result's going to be. And so many parents judge children from 9 to 13 on their mistakes. They don't allow them to make mistakes. They don't allow them to explore. They try to keep them in that 8 to 9 uh, uh, modality. And basically what happens is they try to shape them into the person they want them to be rather than honor them as the person they're becoming and let them make some mistakes. You know, so how our parents deal with this growth of individuality in adolescence is huge. So, you know, trying to fit their round adolescent into a square uh, is not going to happen. So pressing, uh, you know, a, a fun-loving teenager to become a studious, uh, serious person may not be what's best for them. You have to strike a balance. You have to begin to honor them as a person that they want to be because their soul is beginning to break away into life. A lot of people lose their passion because their parents just beat them down during this uh, time in life. You know, a lot of individual issues uh, parents can have a huge influence on by the way they deal with the individuality of their child. You know, I, I believe the best option for remaining connected uh, as more diversity develops between them and their teenager is to bridge 
the experimental emerging differences and give them options. Options to fail, options to succeed. That's huge. So individualism plays a big role on child development, a big role. And that's where individualism works as a psychology. And so it's, a, it's, a, it's not a matter of uh, parental comfort, preference, agreement, or approval. It is a birthright and a responsibility that the adolescents must courageously struggle to seek, define, and honestly claim their individuality without seeking their parents' permission. And that's huge. We do not own our children. We are there to provide shelter, home, guidance, values, love, unconditional love, and support. But we're not there to develop them into what we think they should be. We're not God. And so that's what individual takes on and, and individualism and the psychology of it. It's a beautiful psychology. Now, there's another one that's rather heady. It's called transcendentalism. And it's a very formal word that describes a very simple idea. Basically, people, uh, men and women equally, have knowledge about themselves and the world around them that transcends or goes beyond what they can see, hear, taste, touch, or feel. And basically, transcendentalism is the knowledge that comes through intuition and imagination, not through logic or senses. People can trust themselves to be, to, to, to be their own authority on what is right. So basically, a, a transcendentalist is a person who accepts these ideas not as religious beliefs, but as a way of understanding life relationships. Now, what do we do? How do we make this into a psychology? Uh, because it doesn't have specific tools or methods. You know, it's basically rooted in the ideology and a basic uh, humility that operates behind the scenes. And, and it's less a particular, about a particular tool or methodology, but more about an intention that motivates the intervention. So basically, relationships in a transpersonal psychology are very key. This means it's an approach to understanding our way our minds operate through our relationships with other people, resting in the belief that there is a, something bigger, something deeper in the space between which operates on us. So we pick our friends maybe because we had a real good moment, but maybe we pick our friends because there's something deeper silently in the nonverbal communication about that person that makes us want to speak to them. Maybe there is a law of attraction that is unspoken between us and a, maybe a, a, a person of the opposite sex or maybe even a person of our own sex that basically we're attracted to, whether it's sexual or whether it's, it's just friends or whatever. There's more to it. There's more to it. And, and so many people uh, don't understand why they're friends, but they do understand that there's something between them and they can't always uh, explain it. It's a work in progress and it's interesting that we understand that because that is some of life. We don't have all the answers. Not everything can be labeled. And so basically what this does is it, the, the therapist facilitates the client uncovering their own truth and their own processes and basically works on what's called the subconscious. What, what are the thoughts behind the thoughts? What are the motives behind the thoughts and the thinking? What is the motive behind the behavior? What's going on and what's driving it? And so that basically is a way for a person to discover themselves and to gain a deeper understanding of their own motivations, their own fears, their own beliefs, their own faith. And that's what it does. And, and so transcendentalism is very heady. 
but it also is very deep and very explorative and can really come up with some beautiful answers. All right, now, there's another one that's called determinism. And this is basically that everything, it's a belief in the inevitable of causation. I know that sounds crazy, but everything that happens is the only possible thing that could happen. The chains and the networks of causes are so powerful and so inextortable that every outcome is inevitable. We are already locked in to everything else that is going to happen in the entire future of the universe. That is what determinism is about. So if you knew all the, the principles that had enough information about the present, you could predict the future with 100% accuracy. But the universe resembles a giant machine grinding alone exactly as it must, inevitably will continue to do, uh, and basically with some very rigid rules. And so that is what determinism is about. It's, it, it, to a determinist, there's no, uh, uh, no other facts. There is just, it happens, and it happened for a reason, and there's a lot of factors involved that have nothing to do with what we can control. And so basically what it does is it allows us to free ourselves of uh, negative outcomes and, and judging ourselves. It bas basically understands that there's more responsibility to our life than just our personal responsibilities. We are contributors to an ultimate uh, uh, outcome. And so it does not take our responsibilities away, by the way. But it also, it understands that there is a process for everything and the reason that outcomes happen the way they are is because that's what had to happen. That is, that's, to, to illustrate this, is it, you, when you sit in a restaurant looking at the menu, menu you may seem, it, it may seem that there are many things that you might order. Uh, let's say fish, chicken, steak, onion soup, whatever. Eventually, you'll make a selection and then you'll eat it. So to a determinist, Causal processes dictated that what you ordered was inevitable. When you entered the restaurant, you may not have known yet that you would end up ordering the chicken, but, but that simply reflects our ignorance of what is happening in our unconscious mind. To a determinist, there was never any chance at all that you could have ordered the fish. Maybe you saw it on the menu and you were tempted to get it, and maybe you even started to order it. Then you changed your mind. So no matter... It was never remotely possible. The causal processes that ended up making you order the chicken were in motion. So that's kind of what it is all about. And, and so determinism takes away guilt and shame. And it deals with anxiety. And it is another way to view life. Now, here's we look at free will. It's basic free will is the assumptions. It's a humanistic approach that humans have free will. Not all behavior is determined like determinism, but personal Agency is the humanistic term for exercise of our free will. From um, basically in this in this look, we are looking once again like individualism at self-actualization as a unique human being, and we are experiential learners, and we basically go through life making choices that develop our character. And the more choices we make, the more we define ourselves. So free will is what America, when people came here from other countries, is all about. It is about having human rights to make your own choices, to experience things, make new choices based on our experiences, that we don't have all the answers and that we form 
good things out of mistakes, that all mistakes are an opportunity to learn. And free will gives us forgiveness, and that is a beautiful thing. You know, uh, there, uh, there's a simple example. When two chemicals react, there's no sense in imagining that they could behave in any other way than the way they do. However, when two people come together, they could agree, fall out, come to a compromise, start a fight, and so on. So this, the permutations of this are endless. And, and in order to understand that their behavior, we would need to understand what each party to the relationship chooses to do. So in that example, that's where free will is. Now, that's our show. Our next show is Addiction. And we're going to take it on head first and go straight into it. It's a, it's a tough show, but it's a good show. But it affects 23% of the population of the world. So I want to, to thank everybody for listening. I'd love to hear from you. Get your feedback. drgbmft at sbcglobal.net and Twitter at drgbmft. So remember, dating a stripper is like eating potato chips during church prayer. Everyone is disgusted but wants some too. Okay, so guys, please note that crossing your arms does not hide your boner. That's our show. Thanks for listening. See you next week. That's our show for this week. Please join Dr. Gary Bell for another edition of Absurd Psychology next Friday at 4 p.m. Eastern Time, 1 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Empowerment Channel. Now, go impress your friends and family with what you've learned today and have them tune in next week so they can be almost as smart as you.